the Rosetta Philae mission. Hopefully you've seen uh, something about this in the media, but what the media won't have told you is why the whole story actually started right here in the heart of Oxford. Hopefully you recognize this, this is Bridge of Sighs near the Bodleian. So why am I going to tell you that this is where the whole story started? Well, uh, you'll know what this is. This is a comet. This is a very particular comet made famous by um, a gentleman who lived on this road. So if you go underneath this bridge from the library, you go, you go past the bridge and look on the left, on the wall of one of the houses you'll see uh, a sign that said that uh, Edmund Halley lived there. He was a professor at New College. He was the uh, geom geometrical professor, a civilian geometrical professor. Um, and he figured out that things traveling around in the solar system under the influence of gravity moved in ellipses. Uh, so they weren't just going straight through, but they were moving uh, in these uh, elongated circles, circles or ellipses. And uh, when you look through past comet observations, one particular comet, uh, or three particular comet observations, all seem to be going uh, along the same path. And so he supposed that they were probably the same object. Uh, and so that is, in fact, what's known as Halley's Comet. So this is a comet which comes back every 76 years. Um, and in the early 18th century, Halley made the prediction, therefore, that this was all the same comet and that it would come back in 1758. And then he died, uh, which meant that everyone was very you know, impressed by this, that he could, he could predict something would happen after his death. And so they're, they're very interested to, to follow it. And in fact, it did prove to be the case. And so this is Halley's comet, the most famous comet. So by the time, um, by the, time uh, the 20th century came around and space travel became possible, um, there was an event of Halley's Comet passing by in 1910, and then this most famous of comets came back again in 1986. Um, so this is showing its travel from the very furthest reaches of the solar system up towards uh, the sun. And you'll note that when it's far away, it's very far away. So this is, this is almost as far as Pluto here. This is Pluto's orbit, Neptune's orbit, Uranus's orbit, Saturn's orbit, Jupiter's orbit. Now, Jupiter is very far away. It takes sort of five years or so to send a spacecraft to Jupiter, typically. Uh, and that's a fraction of the distance that some of these comets go out uh, at their furthest. So when Halley's Comet was close to us in the space era, uh, it was a great, there was a great rush to send spacecrafts there, spacecraft there. And uh, so, for example, the European Space Agency, just move this on. The European Space Agency sent a probe which, which flew past Halley's Comet at great velocity and took this picture, showing that, in fact, a comet appeared to be this, this ball of ice and dust all, all clumped together. Um, uh, and then this cloud is, because it's quite close to the sun at this point, the heat of the sun is evaporating the water pushing the water off. And so this is a cloud of mostly water coming off uh, the comet. So there's a whole fleet of spacecraft went past this. There's also some Russian uh, spacecraft and some Japanese spacecraft, which also took pictures of this. But all of them had one thing in common. They just went past the spacecraft and took a few pictures and took a few measurements and had to go past because the comet's going tremendously fast. The spacecraft are going tremendously fast. And they weren't, um, none of these spacecraft could stay at the comet. So following this tremendously successful encounter at Halley, um, what can you do to beat that? The answer is we'd like to go back with a bigger spacecraft and stay for a longer time, you know, orbit it, map it, even land on it. People were talking about bringing a sample back, but that, that wasn't possible at this time. But you don't want to do that with Halley's Comet, which comes back once every 76 years. 
because uh, that's not much of a career. So you want to find a short period comet. This is a comet which doesn't go quite so far out as Halley's Comet. And so they found eventually, this is, this is what's called a Jupiter family comet, because at its furthest out, it's as, about as far as Jupiter. So Halley's Comet comes back once every 67 years, but the Jupiter family comets, this, this comes back once every six years or so. So a plan was hatched to, to go to uh, a, a closer comet. Um, and eventually, this, this proposal developed. So this is the Rosetta spacecraft. Uh, for scale, this is about the size of a small car, I suppose. It's about two meters in this direction by two meters in that direction by about three meters in that direction. So a bit shorter than a car, but uh, possibly a bit heavier. And it's equipped with all kinds of uh, scientific experiments, cameras, spectrometers, uh, devices which can can capture some of the clouds of, of material coming off this comet to see what's in it. So we know there's water in comets. We know there's also some sort of what we basically rock and dust. But some of the most intriguing things about comets is that we also have discovered organic material coming off the comet. This is carbon-containing molecules. And not just carbon, carbon dioxide, really simple things, but even some amino acids. Now, amino acids, you start thinking of life. You know, amino acids are one of the, one of the sort of lowest and simplest building blocks of life. It's not to say that life developed on a comet, but it's interesting to know how many of those stages towards life were conducted on Earth and how many of them were maybe conducted outside Earth in comets or other worlds and so on. So these are kind of big questions we're trying to understand from comets. In addition to the body of the, of the um, spacecraft, which is about three meters long, this bit on the side is the Philae lander, because in addition to mapping the comet and going into orbit around the comet, we want to land on the comet. So here's a picture of the Philae lander. In contrast to the big orbiter, this is about uh, the size of a washing machine, they typically say, so about a meter cubed. It's got three, uh, three legs and experiments in the legs. And um, it has various science experiments, including obviously sampling the comet, grabbing some of it, and, and analyzing that. More on that later. So. Um, in 2004, they finally got this launched. This is almost 20 years after the Halley's Comet flyby, um, remember, but it, uh, it took a while to get the mission defined and proposed and then built and then finally launched. So that's 10 years ago. Um, it then uh, flew many times uh, around the sun, doing swing-bys past the Earth and past Mars to, to, uh, to use a sort of slingshot effect as a gravity assist to get the right velocity to catch up with this comet. Because remember, at its furthest, this comet is as far out as Jupiter. So that's why it's taken 10 years to, um, to reach this comet. Also, they wanted to, to rendezvous with the comet when it was still far away from the sun. Because when it gets very close to the sun, you get this big cloud of gas coming off. And not only can you not image the comet very well, because it's hidden behind this cloud, but also that those jets of material coming off the comet could destabilize the spacecraft, could damage the spacecraft, could push it off course. So that's one of the reasons why the rendezvous with the comet is so far away and why it took so long for the spacecraft to get there. Um, I'm giving the punchline away here a little bit, but as they approached the comet, you know, the initial shape model said, right, it's probably you know, some sort of ball of ice here, a little, little sort of... Uh, spherical thing. But when they got to it, there's a bit of a surprise in that it wasn't really spherical at all. It seemed to be two things stuck together. And uh, there have been all kinds of suggestions what it looks like. You know, one of the first ones was, hey, it looks like a rubber duck. Uh, but then uh, various people have been finding potatoes which look just like the comet. So, 
So I invite you to examine your potato bags and find, uh, find another comet 67P Jurimov Gerasimenko in it. So as we got closer to the comet, in, in August we finally arrived at the comet and got detailed images and so uh, this, this reveals quite a sort of rocky, rocky dusty uh, world. Um, it's not big enough, it, it's only about four kilometers across, so about the size of Oxford. Um, not big enough to have a strong gravity field which would pull it in and make it uh, spherical, so, which is part of the reason it can have this, this odd shape. So then they needed to decide where to land on it, um, and they examined various landing sites. You don't want to land sort of on a cliff, so they picked a nice sort of smooth region. Um, but in the meantime, everyone was uh, admiring all the pictures of these crazy surfaces, and some, look, some, some of it seems to be quite fine dust, some of it seems to be more rocky, and people will be poring over this for, for ages to come. So the spacecraft approached in a really, really complicated trajectory. <laughs> Part of the reason it approached in this way is because um, what only appears very dimly on this is, uh, is the, the sun is up here, which means that the jet of material coming out of the comet is being pushed away by solar pressure in this direction. So they didn't want to approach from that side because they might get bombarded with sort of blocks of ice or dust coming off the comet. So they slowly approached from the sort of upwind direction uh, and then so they went into an orbit which wouldn't take it through that, that jet of the comet. Um, um, and because the gravity is so low, it doesn't take much fuel to make these rather drastic course corrections uh, around the comet. But so eventually, uh, on the 12th of November, which is, what was that? Is that Wednesday? Wednesday two weeks ago? Um, finally, they maneuvered into position where the spacecraft is on a collision course for the comet. And then they released the lander. This is an image of the lander from the spacecraft as it's being sent out to the comet, uh, slowly spinning with its legs deployed. And then the spacecraft, after taking these pictures, needed to fire its rockets so that it was no longer on a collision course with the, uh, with the comet, so that it can go into orbit and act as a data relay. Um, everything's looking good. This is now a picture by the lander when it's just 40 meters above its landing site. Now they've picked the landing site where there are no cliffs, a nice smooth, flat looking, sort of dusty, soft, welcoming looking surface, I mean, for a comet. Um, this is the kind of surface the lander was designed for. And then um, what happened next is uh, this is clearly a computer model of what happens next, but they're imagining the thing will come down. Gravity is very weak, so it has almost no weight holding it down on the comet. So uh, they're going to fire a thruster, uh, which is pointing upwards, so that would push the lander down, I think it had about 10 seconds or 30 seconds of fuel, to push down on the surface so that it could then screw in some sort of screw-like feet on its legs. Um, uh, but in the same way that if, you try to, if, you, if you're trying to screw something into a wall, if you don't push on the drill and on the screw, it's quite difficult to get the screw in. Without that downforce, it can be quite difficult to get something to screw into a surface. And uh, the night before the landing, when they charged up the fuel tanks and they charged up the propeller tanks, they found that this system had malfunctioned, so the thruster was not working. So there was a, there was a lot of debate. <laughs> between the mission manager and the spacecraft manager and the science teams on, you know, will we go, will we not go? 
because in principle, they, they've, they've charged up the tanks, it's not working. Uh, the normal uh, reaction would be, let's stop, let's analyze what's going on and see if we can fix it. But the mission manager eventually decided, look, if it's not working today, it probably won't be working tomorrow. We've already programmed everything for today. Let's, let's just, let's go ahead anyway. Um, so they have a backup plan, which they have harpoons, which they fire into the ground. Um, now, a harpoon's a sort of spear, a barbed spear uh, with, uh, with a tether on it. And the idea is that by firing that into the ground and pulling on the rope, uh, they would be able to stop the, uh, the lander from drifting off. Now, it's not clear uh, whether that actually uh, was fired correctly or not, but it certainly didn't hold because it very soon transpired that this thing, rather than sitting quietly on the surface, was spinning slowly, which meant that it had bounced and drifted off in space. Now, gravity on this comet is about 10,000 uh, times weaker than it is on Earth. So uh, in the same way that if I drop a paperclip or something here on Earth, it'll be on the ground in about half a second. Uh, there, it would take minutes you know, maybe a minute or two minutes. And so this thing bouncing in the weak gravity bounced for an hour and a half before it came down again. It came down a kilometer further away. And we think it was quite lucky not actually to have just bounced off into space and never come back. So, but luck was with us. And um, when we got our next set of images from the lander, this is what we saw. No flat, smooth, nice dusty landings like this. No, on the contrary, we see all these rocks, anything but a flat surface. Now, people will be arguing about this for a long time, but it, it may be that the lander is on its side. It may be that the lander is up against a rocky cliff. Um, but in any case, one of the byproducts of where the lander is, is that instead of getting, instead of seeing the sun half of the time, it sees the sun uh, for about three hours a day, uh, which means that it doesn't have enough solar energy to uh, heat itself up, doesn't have enough solar energy to, to charge its batteries. When the sun isn't shining on it, the temperatures have gone down to minus 150 degrees, so, um, which means that it's not hot enough even to keep its batteries warm enough to, to charge them up and things like that. So as a result of that, it managed to complete its primary science mission, which means running all the batteries using the battery charge it had when it landed. It ran all its science instruments, tried to deploy its drills and so on. Um, but after that, uh, it is now waiting to get closer to the sun when, when, when there might be enough sunlight to, um, to go. Um, some of the data which has come out since then. So these are pictures of the lander from the orbiter. Here's the landing site. And uh, by putting together various pictures, they ha they've revealed this is the lander approaching. It's 1514. Here it is falling ever so slowly down in the weak gravity field, approaching the landing site. By comparing the landing site before and after, uh, this works slightly better in high resolution, but they can see that there's a depression where the, where the lander came down and bounced. And they've even managed to find the lander traveling off stage right. <laughs> Uh, a few a few uh, minutes after the touchdown, so they know it went that way. But of course, everything's rotating. The spacecraft's rotating. The comet's rotating. We need a good shape model for the comet. So um, they're still trying to hunt it. Uh, here is uh, here is the lander project manager trying to explain that this is where it was supposed to land, 
and that uh, the search area now is over here somewhere. Uh, and they are getting uh, more and more refined ideas about where that might actually be. So here's one of the latest um, uh, predictions on where it's be. This is this is uh, they're narrowing down that search by using the radio link between the comet and the between the lander and the orbiter. Um, so. So some people are saying, well, since it landed on its side and, and it stopped working, does that mean it's not a success? And uh, everyone's very keen to remind you that it has got lots of data. This is just a sort of sampling saying, you know, we've got measurements of the ground hardness, the sort of dust layers overlying very, very hard ice. Um, we've measured organic molecules coming off the surface of the comet. And there's all this other data which has been uh, acquired and not analyzed yet. So that'll keep people going for, for years in terms of understanding of comets. And of course, that's just the lander. Whereas the orbiter, which is a much bigger spacecraft, much more capable spacecraft, is still or orbiting for many months yet, um, getting all sorts of interesting results. So um, I think I'll leave it at that. So right now, the Philae lander isn't working because it's very cold and it's run out of batteries. But as it gets closer to the sun, it may well, uh, it may wake up when things get warmer and there's more sunlight. So there's hoping.